You don't have to listen to 90% of people older than you, but you should really seek out the 10% who are actually intelligent and can help you because you will make so many mistakes in your 20s, especially early 20s, because you know a fraction of what you're going to know even by the time you're 30. And that's fine. That's Everyone's like that. But if you can get a couple of the pieces of advice to avoid some major setbacks, you will save years of time and you'll have lots more money. From sunny California, welcome to the Vision of the People podcast, a show about visionaries from various industries who share their inspiring stories and give advice to people wanting to make an impact on the world. As always, I'm your host, Rushi, like sushi with an R, and on today's episode, we talk with the legendary Alex Wilhelm, who is currently the editor-in-chief at Crunchbase a website that allows users to discover innovative companies and the people behind them. Alex takes us on a wonderful tour of his industry and his adventurous life. From humble beginnings as an intern interested in the media industry, to transitioning as a full-time journalist and working his way up to deputy managing director at The Next Web. After that, he joined TechCrunch as a journalist, then became editor-in-chief at Mattermark and now editor-in-chief at Crunchbase, which is now seen as a gold standard in Silicon Valley. Alex also holds a bachelor's in philosophy from University of Chicago, an exciting episode to say the least. Hope you enjoy. All right. Um, today I have someone very special. with the great pleasure to speak with Mr. Alex Wilhelm. Alex, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. This sort of thing is always a good time. Cool. So I'm going to jump right into it uh, with the questions. Um, you have a really tremendous background from University of Chicago as a philosophy major. What made you get into journalism? <laughs> you know, where did your stories sort of start? Um, with any life story, you kind of have to pick a starting point. So I'll go ahead and say I was working for a startup my, uh, my first year at UChicago. I was an econ major back then. And it was called New Ventures. Uh, no one will remember it, but it was a couple of uh, friends of mine that ran it out of downtown Chicago. And it kind of shut down, frankly. It kind of ran out of money and everyone got laid off. We weren't fired, per se, just everything shut down. That summer, I started a company with some friends of mine in Portland, Oregon. And that also kind of shut down. So I wasn't having the best year of startups. And I was bored, uh, frankly. So I started blogging. Um, just to kind of stay in touch with tech. I didn't want to, to not participate, I guess is how I put it. And uh, I joined along with a couple of friends of mine that I met on Twitter, uh, holding page, uh, and then two other guys who were no longer part of the scene, so I'll kind of let them be. And we founded our own little group blog called Tech Guys, which is now off the internet, thank God. And through that process, I got a job in my second year of college at a, at a group called NextWeb, which back then was uh, much smaller. That's why they were willing to hire me, such a little experience. But that's how it kind of kicked off. I just wanted to stay, stay up and stay intact. And uh, I kind of found a way to do it and ended up uh, where I am now. Nice. So it's, it's sort of like a test and trial and, and see where you came about and learned a lot of things um, th- through the journey. So uh, you seem to be in a, in a really cool spot right now with where you're working. Um, would love to, to, to get from your side what really is Crunchbase and what exactly do you do as editor-in-chief at Crunchbase? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. There's still some uh, uncertainty in the market about what's going on. So I'll give 
the shortest possible background, and then I'll answer the, your question more specifically. So Crunchbase was originally a wiki back when wikis were hot. Now, that was a long time ago in the internet era, but TechCrunch, which back then was a kind of a smallish but growing tech blog, found Crunchbase as a repository for information. How can we categorize and understand startups a bit better? Well, we can have a central database, if you will, where we can all edit it together and kind of store up a whole bunch of information on you know, what, who's raising money, who founded what, and that was it. It was kind of a simple idea, and it remained, you know, not not a side project per se, but it wasn't the core thrust of the TechCrunch company back when it was independent. Um, it just kind of grew along with it, um, kind of as a companion, if you will. And uh, later on, when AOL bought TechCrunch, they also got Crunchbase in the deal. And for a long time, you know, back when I was at TechCrunch, uh, Crunchbase was in the TC office. It was just a couple of people, I think, as well. Uh, and then about three, three and a half years ago, it was spun out. Um, of what was then Oath, because you know Verizon bought AOL, merged with Yahoo, that whole story. Um, and now Crunchbase is an independent company with its own, you know, backers, under capitalists, and so forth. And um, that's kind of where I come in. So Crunchbase has a bit of a history of collaborating with TC and uh, writing projects, kind of data work. But Crunchbase wanted to have its own publication. Now you can do this in, in two ways. Most companies, you know, when they decide they want to publish things, build out a kind of content market. And that's the traditional route. It's kind of a tried and true method of, of writing buzz, if you will, around your brand. But what Crunchbase wanted to do was <laughs> something far more expensive and, and uh, less effective up front, for sure, which was build its own actual news team. And um, they convinced me to come on and, and, and try to build it, or I convinced them to hire me to do it, by the way. And so I've been um, as editor-in-chief of Crunchbase News, which is a little bit different than what I think my LinkedIn profile says. Um, we're building out what I hope to be uh, a very strong publication focused on the intersection of startups and money with a strong focus on, on data and journalism, um, but with some other stuff in there as well. So that's kind of how that all kind of worked out. Ah, I see. I mean, that's very interesting because I was researching and I think I use Crunchbase, um, you know, doing this podcast and my own research and analysis probably more than 15 to 20 times uh, daily, including oh, Saturdays sure. and Sundays. So um, that's Dude, very you interesting. You need to have more fun on your weekends. Huh? Come on, man. Don't be in Crunchbase on the weekends. Go outside and stare at trees or whatever people do. <laughs> Maybe I should do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that advice. Um, so, so that's pretty awesome. How would you say, you know, your daily work schedule really looks like? If you can break it down hourly if possible. Well, I can answer that in two ways. Sorry, I live half-time in Providence, Rhode Island, and I live half-time in San Francisco. So I'm kind of presuming you want to know what I do when I'm in SF. Sure. To kind of sleep in on the East Coast. Okay, well, um, I just have a, a hint of color uh, for people listening. It is now officially pouring down rain in Providence. So if I drown uh, in the middle of the show, that's why. <laughs> uh, so in SF, uh, I have become a more of a morning person. So I get up about 6.30, and I try to get to the office by about 7.45, and that includes my commute time from lower pack to five eye if you're a local. Um, and uh, that's when I kind of kick into gear. So one thing that we do each morning in Crunchbase News is write what we call a morning report, which is the first piece out of the day. It's not a reporting piece per se. Mostly it's kind of a bit of a column, um, kind of a take on what's going on. It's designed to be short form and quick, and it's kind of built around me having a time to write while I drink the first couple of espressos of the day. Um, and then from there, you know, we have a news team. So what we're working on is very reactive to what's breaking, what we are breaking, uh, and what we have kind of going out that day. So often we'll have long periods of editing, um, or we'll have a lot of, you know, awkwardly collaborative phone calls about how to structure leads and so forth. But essentially we're in the business of publishing and that's kind of what we focus on. 
Um, the thing I would add in is that you know right now, for example, we're working on a, a redesign, so we have a bunch of you know, product management work also kind of tied into our, our news process. So it's 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 fun, but day, days are flexible. But you know, I'll generally work until roughly eleven thirty a.m. and then realize I haven't eaten, and I'll be very over caffeinated by then. So then I'll find some bananas around the office and kind of eat those. Um, lunch usually around twelve. 12.30, somewhere in there. Uh, I eat in the office to prevent bleeding. Um, on Thursdays and Fridays, I have uh, podcasts that I'm on outside of the office. So on those days, I head to either TechCrunch or the SF Chronicle. Um, but most of the week, I have a couple of meetings throughout the day, work until as late as I can. Um, my fiance is a doctor, and so my, my exit time is centered around when she's done with work for the day. That way, I can get home and we can FaceTime for a while before she's going to bed on the East Coast. Um, and so I'll work until you know, the last possible minute, 5.30 or 6 or 6.30, depending. And then I'll head home. And then from there, I talk to her. Uh, usually eat one to two burritos, play some Destiny 2, talk some shit on Twitter, and uh, kind of do it again. That's uh, my SF life. It's pretty bachelory and um, pretty monomaniacal around work, but it's what I do. Wow. I mean, that's impressive. That's the first time I've ever gotten it broken down into hourly especially with the food details well, um you asked uh, who am i to disappoint you know, I no I, I i love it so thanks for sharing that so uh, i want to really um you know gravitate now to to journalism and the things you said earlier you know personally and some of my peers also you know we certainly did not value quality journalism until a few years ago um with a lot of politics things going on and so much more. And, and I've certainly come to realize the, the vital role um, it plays in society. From your perspective, like, how have you seen as a journalist, the industry evolving? And how do you think it will change in the coming years? Like what traits would you say are changing? That is, a, that is an enormous question. So I think I'll answer the first half of it. And then you can remind me about the second half. But cool. how it's changed is, is, is it's fascinating. So when I started off in journalism, Blogging was still a bit of a dirty word, I'd say. You know, a lot of the newspapers viewed bloggers purely as vultures and that there was this enormous divide between print and online. Online was always going to be the second-class citizen. Print, though you know, in decline, everyone would agree that it was in decline, was still going to remain a uh, ruler of roost for, for you know, decades to come, I think was thought that at least the hoped-for result. But as we all know, that isn't how it worked out. And so what we've seen in between the era of the steepest declines in print revenue for newspapers. And today with the resurgence of newspapers under the strength of subscriptions, I think the post times journal and so forth, um, was an era of experimentation and failure. I think it's how I put it. So, you know, you had in between when I started off in journalism back in like 2009, somewhere in there maybe, um, and, and 2000, say 16, when times and post, kind of all those guys turned around with uh, increasing you know, user dollars. Um, you had things like BuzzFeed came up, and BuzzFeed, you know, pioneered famously uh, native content or kind of sponsored posts. And I think that era of, of journalism is now being eclipsed by everyone watching a paid product. You know, Business Insider Prime, you know, the Financial Times has a super hard paywall. Everyone's trying to go behind, you know, a paid tier, which I think is good and bad, mostly good. Um, but yeah, so the changes were were experience, and I think mostly we saw that it didn't go so well. I mean, how many publications, you know, relaunched or launched themselves and said they were going to change the way ads work. They were going to have a new way to handle ads, only premium sponsors, no bottom tier ads, no filler, you know, no pop-ups. And um, they kind of worked in some cases, but often they did. You know, Recode launched and did pretty 
pretty well, and they end up being subsumed into it. Um, I don't know. It's 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 difficult to look back. I don't want to cause any aspersions or say anything negative because you know people were trying to keep journalism afloat, and that's a very very good thing to do. But the changes have eventually now yielded uh, the, what we can call the paywall era. And what that means is more of my disposable income goes to paying for journalism. But uh, so far, the experiment, if it holds up, is, is looking good. And I think that I'm pretty optimistic right now about the future of journalism, especially five years out when more publications have found a recurring revenue model uh, from users. I think it's going to be good. Um, long way still to go, though. And I'm proud to say that I recently subscribed to the Times uh, in print, proving that I am, uh, though I am a millennial, I'm a pretty terrible one. I hope that kind of answers your question. No, that's it. Um, and so the, the second part of the question, which is, you know, what sort of traits would you say are changing? Like what specific traits are changing and how do you think it'll change? Traits in terms of reader interests or traits in terms of how publications are structured or the bring that um, up? I mean, reader interests. Let's let's say let's do reader interests. Well, right now, obviously, readers are, are you know, imbued with politics because the um, no matter what side of the uh, kind of the great American political divide you're on, you are glued to print and digital media right now. You can't get enough of it. And I think that we're seeing that take over a lot of other stuff. Uh, so the traits of readers, I think, are, are to some degree being driven by the news cycle, but also coverage is being driven by interest because people are willing to pay today for high-quality journalism that covers the stuff that's most dear to them, which is not, again, inherently bad, but it is uh, demonstrative of how reactive media can be to, to users or readers. I guess now they're kind of readers. Readers are users now. There you go. That's a mouthful. Um, I think we're just in a, a dramatic shift. I mean, people now are very accustomed to not going to, to front pages. Like, there's no, there's no need to go to WashingtonPost.com more than once a month. You know, how often are you that bored? Instead, you find stuff on social media, and so you know, I think you know, headlines are becoming more important again. Ironically, you know, spicy headlines were the purview of you know, New York tabloids forever, and now they're the way to drive traffic. You know, across all channels that are not print. It's fascinating, but I would say readers are also kind of the last one here, becoming more sophisticated. Your point about how you didn't realize until a couple of years ago that how important journalism was, I don't even fault you for that because for a long time, journalism was well-funded and kind of given away. It's been you know, the reformation of it that's been problematic uh, under a new business model. So I think sophistication of readers and realization that some of the stuff is worth paying for is good, and uh, the result of that will be uh, I'm trying to avoid saying bifurcation here, but I guess I can. But the splitting in two of the media world between publications that can drive subscriptions uh, through the quality of their coverage and those who cannot. And so I think readers will essentially determine who stays a premium publication and who becomes a bit of a remainder on the sidelines based on their own interest rates. Hmm. Fair enough. I mean, I mean, that's pretty deep with so many factors coming into play. Um, it's, it's complicated. I mean, like that, that's one. That's one framing of it. I could do another one, but um, that's kind of what I think about the most. So that's kind of where my answer comes from. But I don't want to say that that is the only way to think about it or the best way to think about it. That's just the way that uh, sitting here, I currently think about it. No, of course. No, I appreciate that. I mean, there's, I mean, is anything ever certain in one dimension? Uh, Taxes, death, and disappointment. Uh, (laughs) The three things that you will never, ever get away from. People will let you down, the government will take your money, and then eventually put you in the ground. That is fact. That's true. Those are the three exceptions, huh? <laughs> I, I mean, mostly. And that, that and that music is good and people are worth fighting for. I mean, those are the, the things that keep me alive. But the sad ones are also true. 
I mean, I, I, I can feel the energy. I certainly like those principles. Um, and so, so following up to that question, and we're talking about journalism, what are the signs of quality journalism? That's a really, really good question. So there's, there's a cosmetic element to this, there's an editorial element to this, and there's a stylistic element to this. So the aesthetic one is when you go to a site, you can kind of tell by its ad load and what types of ads are being displayed, how high quality it is. A lot of publications, like to pick on one that I don't like, The Daily Caller, can be um, stricken with, with really, really kind of loose and terrible ads, you know, pop-unders, pop-ups, you know, the underlying links that are built in that are just ads. ads. That stuff generally is indicative or indicative of a publication that is uh, forced to take on any sort of revenue source that it can because it can't self-fund in another way. Um, so you can kind of start there. And that's not always true. That's not a rule. It's more of a guideline. Um, two is, is the how they handle headlines. You know, a lot of publications that blew up, I want to say not four years ago, like Uproxx, Upworthy, you know, they had that one kind of famous uh, headline format that was, um, you know, cat finds fish in gutter. You won't believe what happens next. And so you can kind of tell a bit by how baited you are by a headline, the quality of publication that you're talking about. And, you know, the, the, this is not to say that the Times has perfect headlines of the Post uh, at all, um, or that there isn't room for comedy or occasionally room for a hook and a headline. But you can tell if, you know, 80% of the publication's headlines are designed to not give you the full story, but to give you just enough to interest you and then demand that you show up, probably not a good sign. You know, you can convey information to headlines and still drive traffic. But if you depend on every single page you to pay the rent, you have to change how you approach uh, that sort of writing. And then, you know, third is the, the quality of the, of the copy itself, the actual words and the story. Um, this is a more complicated topic. It's a bit more sophisticated. But you could, if, you, if you read a lot of news, you can pretty quickly ferret out political bias, for example, um, which is not always a bad thing to have. Um, or it, it just, for example, a bias towards the truth. You can, you know, figure that out. You can figure out the publication's bias towards how to quote sources, um, how to approach experts, and uh, how much, uh, uh, how, this, how much credence they give to experts uh, in terms of how that frames the arc of the story. And so inside of, inside of a piece, you can really do a lot of um, detective work about how it's put together and uh, how well it's done. And the last component to that little bit would be how strong the editing is. Uh, if, you ever, if you're seeing typos or, or that sort of things, it, it shows those by written uh, and that'll tell you a lot about the editorial process of the publication. So it's, it, it's a holistic answer. Sorry for being so long-winded, um, but it's a lot of stuff. So you can look at it aesthetically in terms of how they approach headlines and also uh, the style of their copy, the post itself. No, I appreciate that. I mean, it's better to understand uh, small elements and you breaking it down really helps. Certainly because all the three factors, like you said, I've certainly seen it play out on Twitter really well. Where one of the biggest examples, an example that's that's been irritating me, is the unfair amount of criticism that Elon Musk got when uh, he was trying to help um, the Thailand cave situation, and a lot of it seemed. I mean, I could be wrong, and it certainly is an opinion. It, it, a lot of it did seem like unfair coverage towards him, and especially um, after his you know quarterly call um, for Tesla didn't go so well. It, it seemed like you know that was brewing from journalists so by unfair coverage you're referring to the, the negative coverage that he received for his his attempts to help on thailand campus yeah i mean given that he also said um you know he also followed up with a comment that was totally unnecessary and unfair too right. um but i'm just speaking in general terms so your but your argument was that after the quarterly earnings call which he 
I mean, if you haven't heard the story about this misbehavior on that call, it's a master class now not to be a CEO of a public company. Um, so you think the journalists were essentially primed um, to expect more bad behavior from him and therefore frame the story a bit in that light from the beginning. Yeah, I, I just felt – I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. And I, it, yeah, is, is yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think you're not entirely wrong. I wouldn't say you're entirely right either. I think the, the Elon Musk um, – he's a history of making grandiose statements and failing to follow through. I mean just for example, in the wake of um, the Thailand um, – we'll call it escapade or the adventure for now. You want to think about it from his perspective. It was a crisis and a disaster from the perspective of the children in the country. But – um, he promised to fix uh, the water situation in Flint. That's an enormous promise. And so if you have a history of saying things like that and then not perhaps being able to manage the cash situation at your own core company, Tesla, um, it, it's, it's annoying. It grates. And then Elon's also at a disadvantage because his fans are incredibly toxic. And so if you're a journalist and you promote or not promote, say anything critical of them, uh, you, get, you get attacked by people that claim that you're you know, on the take, that you're a short seller, that you're a liar, that blah, blah, blah. And so that, that will poison the well a little bit. But I, I think Elon deserved a lot of the negative criticism that he got. Now, not all of it was nuanced or interesting. Um, but if you show up and you take a bunch of media attention away from the children and put it on yourself, uh, you better put up. You know, you can't, you can't do that and not deliver. And the criticism that he responded to by calling the diver a pedo, if I call correctly, um, was out. The diver said that a submarine would not have worked, that it was all PR stunt. And so if you show up in the middle of a crisis in which children could die, for a PR stunt, I mean, that's not good. You should be mocked for that. You should be, you should be really mocked for that. Um, and you should be, because we should not encourage that kind of behavior uh, in the world. That's my take. Again, I could be wrong too. That's how I read the situation. No, fair enough. I, I respect that. And I think it's, I think you got to have an open dialogue um, no. for, you know, the pros and cons and work out a situation. So I definitely agree with that. So, you know, I actually saw your um, article this morning on um, the alphabet and their losses on the other bets that they're placing. And oh, yeah. certainly I've followed you and you certainly have. Uh, I certainly enjoy reading your articles. Thanks. How would you say, you know, how can one become a better writer? You know, I've, I've you know. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> um, I got, I got, so I got beat up in editing yesterday. Um, my, my, my copy editor slash manager editor, Holden Page, who is uh, one of the finest humans alive in my view. I, I, I live and die by him. Um, is gentle with me when he tells me how much editing goes into my stories, but then I saw him edit one live yesterday. And the sheer amount of changes that went in to make that post readable were astounding. Um, so I'm still working on this myself. But the only answers that I've found um, so far are, are reading really good stuff and critically reading a lot. Um, and so what I think people fall into a trap of, they say, I want to write like so-and-so. And then they go read all that person's stuff and help you kind of put on that, that mantle or that guide's um, I, I don't think that's the way to go about it. I, I think it's better to read broadly and um, and not try to emulate in terms of how you read, how you write the person you want to be, but instead to let a lot of good styles flow through you and um, let that become your own kind of mix at the end. Or at least, again, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and I don't think there's too much of a penalty for reading bad stuff occasionally. So I let myself read um, schlocky fiction occasionally just because I need a palate cleanser. Um, but I think reading... Uh, Often, and then also just putting pen to paper is, is key. You can't be a writer who doesn't write. You know, just, it's not oxymoron. But a lot of writers want that. You just can't do it. So, do you believe um, in the quote, the pen is mightier than the sword? Um, depends on how far away from the sword I am. 
if it's a thousand miles, yes. If it's four feet, I'm probably gonna get cut. Um, <laughs> so you know, I, I wear body armor into a to a war zone. I wouldn't wear a pencil. I think the idea that long term in civilized countries and you know periods of time is probably very important. Um, yeah, ideas are ultimately more, more powerful than uh, weapons because often you know weapons follow ideas. So you can think about which comes first. Um, it's, it's rare that people go to war without there being some unified principle behind it, even that's just chaos, which can be driven by, by writing. Um, think about the power of ideas and what they've done in this world. If you didn't have the writings of Marx, just to pick one example, and I don't want to pick the, the Marxist fight here, but I'm too lazy for that, but if you didn't have Marx and Engel, Engels, right, um, you wouldn't probably have had communist revolutions. They, or at least they would have looked quite different under different political name. And so think about how different the world would be. Many guns and swords were used in that period of time, but it started with ideas. So I think net, yes, um, but I think that quote's often misused to presume that you can wipe the way out of danger, which is usually not true. That Interesting. I did not know that. Uh, that's a great way to put it. What? Uh, so now, uh, that was great stuff. Thanks for that. Now transitioning over into sort of your personal side is what are some lessons that you've carried with you ever since you started your career? Like any cornerstone stories that you still live by? Well, a couple. Um, one is that essentially hard work is, or working hard is critical, um, <laughs> which sounds really self-serving. I'm not the hardest working person in the world, but I, I aspire to be among the top you know, 10%. I don't know if I make it. Um, but since, since I was you know, starting off, my first job was uh, – I was a video podcast intern at a local media company called Brass Magazine. Um, and I tried to do my best work for them as much of it as I could. I was like I don't know, 17, 18 at the time, so it wasn't great. Um, but, I, but I tried super hard. And I tried to keep that up. And what I found is that people always consistently notice um, if you are one of the – if you're the person who's going to show up early and stay late, that always sticks and it helps. So across the different things that I've done in my career, again, I'm not, I'm not that old. Thank heavens, but uh, you know it's been a bit very. That's been a universal uh, truth, and then also you know people mostly want to help, uh, and so if you just let them, they will often guide you. Now you have to, sometimes you have to earn that, but you can. So you know people are generally helpful, and hard work is useful. But past that, everything's a bit specialized. You know, I have notes about writing, I have notes about startups, I have notes about what I've learned about you know management in the last year and a half. But that's all a bit niche. Um, probably those two things are the other big ones. But then if I can just throw in because we're talking about my personal life, uh, one rule I try to live by as best I can is that most people are a little bit sad and could use a hug. And that's normally true about me too. So I'm not trying to say that uh, it's not true about other people. But everyone's going through something you don't know about. Everyone's had an issue that uh, they haven't told you. And uh, they're holding on something. And so generally speaking, be kind, be loving, be patient, and uh, always take a chance to um, to care a little more than you think you have to. Because it's never going to be a miss unless you're talking about someone who's particularly toxic and then you can't say it in so that's what I would say. I like it. Empathy always wins. It does. Being nice is just good. Like it's just it doesn't cost you anything. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's just worth it. I agree. So and and you know, like you were saying, you you've gone through various things from internships to TechCrunch. You've had an incredible amount of experience in, in such a short time at various outlets. If you had to start over all over again. What would you do differently and why? 
Oh man, that, that is a dangerous question. Um, do I get to start over again <laughs> with all the stuff that I know now, or do I have to start over with a blank slate again, but I get to pick the starting point? Anything you like, you get to pick the starting <laughs> point. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I, I don't know. I drink less in my 20s, uh, for starters. I would have been a bit <laughs> less of a pompous ass in my, you know, from 23 to 26, I think. That was my period of, of ego. I could have been a lot kinder back then. I wasn't. I was too caught up in myself. Um, but you know, beyond that, I can't. I, a lot of stuff that I that I would undo or redo is stuff that I had to. I had to mess up to learn. And so it, it's it would be disingenuous for me to say I would do this and that and then make my life look smooth because that's never how things go. You know, I wouldn't want to create a fantasy life in which everything was easy because then I wouldn't be half the person I am today. I think a lot of what I is falling down. I mean, it's not. It's not fun. But I think that's why people often say your 30s are your best decade because it's probably the, uh, the happy medium between experience, income, and uh, not being old, frankly. Um, and I just turned 29, so I'm uh, about to embark on that in 362 days or something. So that's kind of on, on my mind. But yeah, that's kind of my answer to that. Not, it's not a very good answer uh, for a relatively interesting question, but uh, I'll the best I can do. No, I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, yeah, as long as... You're you're honest with yourself, which is which is one of the greatest things I've I've come across in, in talking with so many people that there's a satisfaction just owning up to who you are. Um, and and I'm starting to learn that. It, I mean, like I, I really wish I was cooler. You know, like that's one thing that I that I've always like. I talk too fast, I'm a little bit hyper, um, I'm kind of jumpy, you know, and things like that. And I've always wanted to be a, kind of one of those cool, you know, people that like never move too quickly and like talks occasionally, but can't do it can't that's just not who i'm ever going to be and so you just kind of come to grips with what you got uh and uh i think the old quote is you go to war with the army you have in this case that's just you so ah, fun. i mean i like it i personally like it otherwise it would kind of be a boring podcast if it didn't have energy right so uh, you, you um, and i share that so yeah yeah <laughs> so uh I want to move on to my next question, which is sort of an interesting one. I think you'll like, um, and this question is really about the concept of deep work, something Cal Newport talks about. Um, are you familiar with deep work and the concept of it? I could give you a guess, but not better than that. So it's probably faster if you just explain to me your personal definition of it. Okay. So deep work is basically when you're actually focusing on specific targets and you're not distracted. So <clears throat> Maybe when I'm writing, for example, you know, I need to write for one hour straight and not be distracted by anything, whether that's social forces or someone's bugging me, where I completely need to be in my zone um, and I need to be working without any distractions whatsoever in life. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I call that float. But yeah, sure, deep work. Yeah, so float. So Twitter and social media is often seen as a platform for journalists of all sorts. Um, and certainly social media being a distraction um, how do you how do you get into the zone? Like, how do you focus? Because I know you have, I think, upwards of 60,000 followers on Twitter. Um, you're pretty active on there, um, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, you're active on there and you're also writing. How, how are you able to focus? I mean, I, I don't is, is the stupid answer to that. I occasionally carve out blocks of time that are supposed to be, you know, sacred. Like this morning, I was supposed to carve out two hours um, to work on a piece which is a bit of a guide and walkthrough about how to read S1 filings and companies go public. So a piece that I've been trying to work on now for two and a half weeks I haven't gotten to. Um, but I tried to block out the time. 
I tried to make sure that I had, you know, the space in my calendar where I could turn off TweetDeck, that I could turn off Slack and have some moments of, of quiet. I just I didn't have time this morning. Sadly, uh, we were editing a different piece and I just couldn't do it. Um, but you end up writing your best stuff when you have the time and space to have deep work, to have that hour that you put in. Because you can do a hell of a lot an hour. You can do, an hour is a lot of time to do work if you're uninterrupted. Um, but mostly, especially now that I'm a manager, uh, that's incredibly hard for me to actually do. So most of the work that I, the writing that I do now is done in pieces. And that's why it's not as good as it could be, which is why uh, I'm glad you like what I've been writing because it's not my best work. It's just, it's a, it's a B, probably, probably about an 8, 8.2, 7.8 out of 10 for me, um, what I should be doing. But, you know, you make sacrifices and you kind of balance things. Because I take on more management tasks, my team can do more deep work, you know? And so you end up just trading off. Um, but the idea of deep work, I just as a small addendum, is uh, often discussed in the context of developers. You know, if you interrupt a developer, it takes them 20 minutes to get back to what they were doing, blah, blah, blah. So don't contact developers. Sure, but that goes for everybody. You know, I think it's one of those concepts that has been uh, hyper-focused onto one correct niche, but it's not that niche of a concept in general. And uh, the happiest moments for me, at least, when I'm writing or when I lose track of time. And that means that I'm really, really relaxed and uh, hopefully writing well. So I look for those as much as I can. Um, and I think my next job will not be an editor. <laughs> I think I'm going to go back to just being a writer. Um, so I can have more of those moments and uh, less interruptions. I think that's a happy way to live life. That's interesting because that's certainly after I came to the realization of how distracted I was. I mean, now that's what I crave every day. You know, I carve out at least two to four hours of, of you know, blocks where I'm not disturbed by anything. And, and you're right, one hour is so powerful um, that you can do a day's work within an hour if you actually just time it right and you're actually doing the right thing. Absolutely. And one thing that this, this highlights is a lot of people don't get that much done. Um, you, ever, you ever just get an assignment from someone and kick it back to them in half an hour and have them be very surprised that it's done? Because you have half an hour of uninterrupted time. You, know, you can just you can crush in those hours. Um, but you said, do you do two to four of those a day? Yeah, try to. I'm very proud of you. That's fantastic. Good. That, that's a lot, that takes discipline. That's not easy. That's it's actually surprisingly hard to do. So good job. It is. Yeah. Um, it was very hard in the beginning, but I guess if you just do it over and over every day, it just comes around. It's a bit like meditation. So you know, I think now that I, I've, I've worked a little bit on trying to learn how to meditate because I'm a, kind of a hyperactive person, um, that is a similar idea. You actually have to turn off everything else and just sit there with your eyes closed. But after 10 minutes of that, you do feel materially better. So I guess it works. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly do it. I mean, that's part of my, you know, daily, you know, um, waking up process. As soon as I wake up, um, I'll meditate for about 30 minutes, do a little bit of yoga, uh, and then move on with my day. So it usually helps me, you know, get into the zone, I guess. Dude, that's, if you can keep that up for like 10 more years, you'll be the most zen person in your 30s, for sure. <laughs> Well, we'll see how that turns around. That's a goal right now. So back to you. Um, let's, you know, short few questions here left yeah, sure. um, before we wrap up a um, little bit on a faster pace. What what message would you like to pass down to a young journalist or, or perhaps even a journalist in the making? It's worth it. Have fun. Don't take yourself too seriously. Six words. Ah, nice. <laughs> short and sweet. What's uh? What would you say is the best part about being a journalist? 
That's wow. Okay, I don't I don't have that short of an answer for that one. But the first thing that came no, you don't first need, thing in mind is you can explain the best thing about being a journalist, but it's one thing that I enjoy. Is, is that fair? Yeah, fair. All right. So one thing that I love in my particular niche of journalism, which is you know tech and finance, is uh, when I get to meet an entrepreneur who's incredibly interesting and also very excited about what they're working on. When you meet someone whose idea really animates them and lights them up from toes to top, nothing jazzes me more than that. And that that's a distinct pleasure that I've had now for, gosh, I'm old, about ten years. Um, and that that, I, that has never worn off. Um, but now that I've had a second to actually answer your question. Uh, maybe the best thing about journalism is access to people you otherwise wouldn't get time with. Um, and so you end up with a lot of doors open to you as an individual that will let you learn. Some people you get to interview are just actually fantastic. And that teaches you a lot about yourself and kind of puts you in your place in some cases. They're just smarter than you. Um, and that's been a big gift to me. Again, maybe not the best thing in journalism, but those are at least two things that have uh, really made it worthwhile for me. Well, I mean, that uh, a hint would be certainly the podcast I'm down, I'm now doing, uh, meeting people such as yourself. So, yeah, I wish I was, I wish um, I was some coast certainly I'm, uh, I'm on the wrong coast. It'd be a lot more fun to do this uh, together. Definitely, no problem though. Um, what have you been most proud of thus far in life? Can that be a personal thing, or does it have to be professional? Um, personal, professional, both. Uh, I'm sober, and that was a bit of a struggle. Uh, that consumed a little bit of my, my 26 and 27th years of life. Um, just over two years sober now, I, I really had to earn that. Uh, and I'm still earning it. Um, and so in terms of the things that I'm most proud of by, by effort that went in, um, that's probably got to the top one. And then the second thing is uh, I'm getting married next year, actually. And uh, I, uh, I'm marrying the right person. And so I'm, I'm really, really enthused and happy about that. And, you know, relationships are a lot of work, but um, that's one thing that I've, uh, I think I've got right. So that was my second one. Hey, that's awesome. Congrats. Mm-hmm. So last two questions. As a writer, you must, you know, read a lot and come across a lot of scenarios. What's one mistake that you see people within my age group making the, making the most mistakes? So <laughs> my age group, as in, you know, people in their 20s. Yeah, yeah. Well, early 20s. Yeah, early 20s. I'm, I'm on the late side of that, but... Um, Apparently, we shouldn't buy avocado toast is uh, what the media tells us. Um, <laughs> the, the only actual useful piece of advice I could give would be you don't have to listen to 90% of people older than you, but you should really seek out the 10% who are actually intelligent and can help you because you will make so many mistakes in your 20s, especially early 20s, because you know a fraction of what you're going to know even by the time you're 30. And that's fine. That's Everyone's like that. But if you can get a couple of pieces of advice to avoid some major setbacks, you will save years of time and you'll have lots more money. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, good luck finding those people. But if you can find a couple of mentors, uh, it will pay back in, in you know, a hundredfold returns. It's nothing's better than that. Hmm. Great advice. I mean, I'm lucky to get a response from uh, from you then in that case. Well, I mean, look up to me as much as you will, but I wouldn't much. Um I'm just kind of lucky that I'm here, so. <laughs> so last question um, before we go on to our 30-second round is, what vision are you out to conquer? What vision am I out to conquer? Correct. I mean, what vision am I pursuing myself? Interesting. Hmm. I would say that that's a hysterical question because uh, no matter what you say, you sound like a pompous jerk. Um, I am out to make 
the financial world more interesting, I guess is how you might want to summarize my professional life. Uh, and in my private life, I'm, uh, I'm trying to work to be the most supportive and active friend that I can be. And I hope to fuse those two later in life uh, to do a lot of service. Hey, that's solid. Much respect to you. Um, and then now into our last 30 second sure. round. It's called two words, one two answer. Words. Oh my God. I'll say, All right. so, so I'll say two words and then you pick one answer okay. and then done. So here we go. Reality or fantasy? Reality. Pen or keyboard? Keyboard, for sure. Internet or people? <laughs> oh, man. People, but that's a rude question. Plato or Aristotle? Uh, Plato, I've read more. Nature or museums? Nature, no. Day or night? Day now, but I was a night person. And the last one, lively or calm? Lively, man. Gotta eat. Gotta laugh. You gotta, <laughs> I mean, you gotta smile. I, I, I mean, shit. Life, life is long. I'm here. I'm here to laugh and eat pizza. So you know, I calm is good, but calm is good in the mornings and the late nights. During the rest of the time, you should be you breathing. So I like that. Um, hey, Alex, it's been a pleasure. Um, I really do appreciate uh, you being on the show and giving me a chance. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for having me on. This uh, this sort of thing is always weird for journalists because you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time we're asking the questions, and so. Nor, I didn't have to prep. I didn't have to do it. I just showed up. It's, uh, it's like ice cream. It's like dessert. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I hope some of this was, uh, was useful. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. We really hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Please like us on Facebook at Vision of the People Podcast. And do give your thoughts to me at Lil Rushi Shaw on Twitter on who I should have next on the show. If you found this insightful or interesting, share it with someone that could find this helpful. As Mahatma Gandhi once said, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. Till next time, keep striving.